I was uh, a very young man, the Cold War, the USSR was going on. Some of you older folks, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of your younger ones uh, uh, may not know specifically. But in those days, there was a great fear of nuclear war breaking out between the USSR and the United States. And the head of uh, the USSR at that time was a man by the name of Nikita Khrushchev. And he made a statement that was often repeated, news media and other places, and talked about in those days, that was a very troubling statement. But he said, we will bury you. Now, he actually said that in 1956 to a group of Polish uh, a Polish delegation, political delegation that was a meeting uh, he was meeting with. But it, it kind of become fixed in people's minds or it was thought that he actually said it in 1959, three years later when he visited in America. He actually had said it three years before that. But uh, he did a lot of, uh, of course he was, he was speaking to the Polish people and, uh, and not the U.S., but he, he reinterpreted his words at some time later, actually. Uh, he, he had, I guess, so much, so many questions about it and so forth, uh, that it would naturally come up in 1959 when he did visit here in America. And this is the statement he had, he made at that time in regard to his earlier statement. He said, I have already said, that the words, we will bury capitalism, and that's evidently what he meant. I've already said that the words, we will bury capitalism, should not be taken literally, as is done by ordinary grave diggers who carry a spade and dig graves to bury the dead. What I had in mind was the outlook for the development of human society. Socialism will inevitably succeed capitalism. At least that was his reinterpretation. In other words, he was talking about burying our culture rather than burying people. Well, whatever Khrushchev meant, it is clear that the statement was meant to intimidate to intimidate non-socialist culture back in those days. The question we have to face today is this. Has Nikita Khrushchev's words come true? Well, the answer to that question is, well, no, not yet. But perhaps, I mean, it's a question mark. Going forward, will capitalism succumb to socialism? Some think that we are in the process of that happening at this very moment. An author that I love to read, and some of you may know of, a man by the name of Robert Kiyosaki, 
who wrote the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, a number of years ago, is interviewed quite often on uh, business channels and business outlets, news, and so forth. In a statement he made yesterday, and Kiyosaki was raised in Hawaii, a U.S. citizen, and he fought in the Vietnam, Vietnam War. He made this very astounding statement yesterday. He said, the guys I was shooting at in Vietnam are now politicians in America. Now, he wasn't talking about literally they were, but in regard to the viewpoints of many, that is his statement. Now, I'm not here to go any further as far as talking about politics this morning because I'm trying to simply illustrate one thing. Words intimidate. Words have an effect. I still clearly remembered the quote from 1959. I was six years old then. All I had to do was type it in and I had it word for word just like he had it when I did the Google search on it. Whether his words in the long run prove right or wrong, they were meant to intimidate. By intimidating, I mean that they were designed to frighten, threaten, demoralize, and so forth in order to persuade and manipulate. It is the world's way of doing things. It is the world's way short of outright warfare to try to persuade or manipulate or bully others into thinking, acting, or doing what you want them to do. It is nothing new. All you got to do is take a look around and any, any media outlet you want, and you'll find examples of it today. But I do not want to dwell on that. I just want to make the point and make this point. It is nothing new. David faced the same thing in his day, 3,000 years ago or so. By the way, we're looking at Psalm 12, and you'll note that right above verse 1 in your English Bible, it says, To the chief musician on an eight-stringed harp, a psalm of David. How many strings? A banjo has five strings. A guitar has what? Where did my musicians go? Six? Uh, I guess, I don't think this is a big old harp like we imagine, but it was a stringed instrument, eight strings, written, musically, designed to be produced in word and in, in music by David, a psalm of David. Now that that heading to Psalm 12 was not added later by people wanting to, you know, make a good note in your Bible for us. No, that in the Hebrew Bible is verse 1. It's inspired scripture, just like our verse 1, which would be verse 2 in the Hebrew Bible. So, it's not to be questioned that David wrote this psalm. By the way, there's a good article on Brother Sam Smith's site, biblicalreadercommunications.com. Uh, he has a paper on there. I think it's entitled, Who Wrote the Psalms? 
So go back and read that if there's any question in your mind. But a lot of people in this day and age like to say, well, you know, it was written by somebody a lot later and all that. No, the Bible says it was written by David. And so the context and the content of Psalm 12 comes right from the life of David. And what we face today in this war of words that is going on constantly in our world and in our culture is nothing new. Now, Psalm 12 is the third of our psalms that we are looking at, and we're looking at a selective list. The first one we looked at was Psalm 1, which was, uh, or which we labeled a wisdom psalm. A wisdom psalm gives instruction in godly living. Psalm 2 that we looked at last week is a royal psalm, which points to the coming Messiah and his and whereas Psalm 1, the wisdom psalm, gives instruction, Psalm 2. But we're moving to Psalm 12 now for our third category. And this is what is called a lament psalm. A lament psalm. And it is designed to give us comfort. Psalm 12 begins with this word in our verse 1. Help! Pretty short and sweet there for a lament poured out to God. Here's a list of all the rest of the Psalms we're going to look at consecutively. We're on the number three one there, the lament Psalm. And so David says, help! Help, Lord! Pretty straightforward. He, he, he's in trouble. Whether it is, and it could well have been, physical danger. It certainly was in the context here. It certainly was the fact that he was more, he was, he was demoralized. So a lament psalm is, is about pouring out one's heart to God concerning what suffering, what, what difficulty, what problems, uh, what burdens that we have on our heart. Uh, sometimes I'm afraid we as Christians think that we should spend all of our time praising God and glorifying God. Now, that, that's a great thing to do. But God also expects us and wants us and, and has uh, given us every privilege to pour out the negative things to Him as well. The, the needs that we have, the prayer requests that we have, uh, the concerns we have, the fears we have. And that's what a lament psalm is all about. He says, help, Lord, for the godly man ceases and the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. They speak idly every one with his neighbor, with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. So there's the words. The topic here in Psalm 12 is... The words that we hear from people that intimidate us, that demoralize us, that discourage us. So the whole point of this lament psalm, when you get down to it, is simply this. He's saying to us, and, and, and he doesn't say it at the beginning, but we'll get to it. 
But the point of the psalm as we move through it and, and digest it is this. We don't need to be intimidated by the words of men. We shouldn't be. God doesn't want us to be. David's experience here captured for us as he writes Psalm 12 was meant to be sung in worship. That we in our very worship could acknowledge our pain, our fears, and all the rest. And yet working through this psalm, we're going to see why we shouldn't let that so affect us. So, Psalm 12, don't be intimidated by the words of men, by the words of our culture. By the way, in general, our culture which is under the influence of the God of this world, Lucifer, Satan himself, has a unified voice. Oh, no, it doesn't seem so unified until you, you boil it all down. And basically, it is a unified condemnation of anybody that believes in Jesus Christ or serves the Lord. And it is a deification of mankind, which is what, Socialism, humanism, and every other religion except Christianity in this world is about. A man is his own God. And because we are outnumbered, now there are, there are millions of Christians in this world, but we are still, and we have been in every generation, sorely outnumbered by those who reject Christ and reject the Bible and they have a different philosophy, a different message, a different religion, which they hold to. And it is their words that they will use to intimidate us to squash our testimony and our worship and our service. So we learn from this and we learn from David not to be intimidated by the words of men. And I'm going to give you two reasons why. Reason number one is this. Men use words as weapons. Words can be wonderful things. They can encourage us and they can instruct us and, and they can edify us. But words turned around and used for the wrong purpose, are very destructive. And those who bow to the God of this world are good at using their words as weapons. And understanding that, acknowledging that that is the atmosphere, that that is the situation and the circumstance we walk in in this world continually helps us understand that we have to have a mindset that is opposite to that and that can comprehend what we're up against and process it and see it and understand it from a biblical perspective, especially our response. So evil men use words as weapons. Now, their words are used to intimidate. Notice here. He says, help, Lord, for the godly man ceases. <laughs> now, this is kind of <clears throat> a figure of speech that's called hyperbole. An exaggeration for the purpose of making a point. 
Uh, David knew that not all godly men had ceased to exist. That's not really what he's saying. But he is saying the godly men of this world, for the most part, have ceased to function as they should. The Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. Now, the godly man and a faithful man, that's synonymous. It's what's called synonymous parallelism in Hebrew poetry. You see it in Proverbs, you see it in Psalms quite a bit. They say it one way, they'll say it again, it's synonymous. It means the same thing, but saying it a little differently makes the point a little differently. And he says, the faithful man, as it would seem, David says, have simply disappeared from the face of the earth. Why? Because they've been intimidated by the words of this world and by the unbelievers and the enemies of God. We see that in verse 2 where he says, they, there's there's the unbelieving opposition, they speak idly, everyone with his neighbor, with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. Now, he's, he goes to the source. He's not really describing the intimidating words here. He's talking about the source of the intimidating words. They speak idly. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means it doesn't... Uh, what they are actually saying, whatever it is they are saying, uh, can be categorized as something that has no substance. Uh, the word idly here indicates something that's just unimportant, no substance. So, words used, at wep- words used as weapons don't necessarily make a pertinent point at all. They're just used to demoralize and intimidate. We'll continue on. It says, with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. It's hypocritical. It's, well, it's a lie. What was it Jesus said about Satan? He's been a liar from the beginning. He's a liar. He's the father of lies. It's John 8, from verse 44 or so. But let's take a look at 2 Samuel chapter 15 for a moment. 2 Samuel 15 and verse 4. This, and we got it on screen here so you can see it. David was, this was after David become king. Saul has died. He's off the scene. David has reigned for a while. David's son Absalom is a grown man. Absalom has designs on the kingdom. He wants to be the king. He stood outside the gate, and people would come to David, and David not only served as a military king and a a political leader, but he was the judicial branch of their government as well. So two people had a dispute, and they couldn't resolve it otherwise, or with anyone else, they would come before the king, and the king would render a judgment. Well, as people were coming for that and going from that, Absalom made sure every day that he stood right outside uh, of the gate there, and he would catch these people maybe as they were going out, and, and he would be sure and get a hold of the one that was disappointed. That was probably pretty obvious. And he would say, you know, boy, if I was uh, a judge in the land, everyone who has any suit or cause could come to me, and I would give him justice. In other words, the implication was David had not 
given him justice. Which was a lie, no doubt. I know David wasn't infallible. Maybe he made a mistake here and there. But all in all, uh, David, I, I believe, gave fair and just decisions. But Absalom, in every case, made the point to the losing party. Oh, man, you've been cheated. You, you, you know, you had not been treated right. But if I was king, you would have had justice. Subterfuge, intrigue, treason, call it what you want. He was untruthful and manipulative with his words. So accusations, but accusations that lack substance. And then going back to our psalm, note verse 4. In reference to these people who are double-hearted, hypocritical, those who uh, speak things of no substance at all, verse 4, he says, Who have said, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are our own, who is Lord over us? Whoa. Not only do words used as weapons represent in many cases simply emptiness. Not only do they lack substance, but boy, they're unrestrained. They, they know no bounds. There's no depth of depravity they will not sink into to accomplish what they want, to influence others against God and against all that is godly in this world. They are unrestrained. Why? Well, they say simply, we're our own authority. With our tongue, we'll prevail. With our lips, we will rule over you because there is no one over us. We are our own authority. Now, I want you to drop down to verse 8 for a minute. We'll come back to this, obviously. But notice these people who speak this way are described again in verse 8 this way. The wicked prowl on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. Well, when is vileness, and there's another word which means to be empty, pointless, useless, downright immoral for that matter. When is vileness exalted? All the time? Everywhere? All the time? Around us? In this world we live in? The wicked prowl on every side. We're surrounded. We're the, we're the wagon train in the wilderness, circled up. The enemy's circling us all the time. Their words of vileness, their words of untruth, their accusations, their judgments, their manipulations, their spears, their arrows, so that they aim at us all the time, they are prolific. They are prolific. 
Take a look, if you will, some examples with me in Scripture to confirm this. Let's think about where David started out. On that battlefield, facing Goliath with a shepherd's sling. Why was he there? Because every other hardened soldier in the army of Saul was intimidated and frightened to the point that they were paralyzed to do anything about this Philistine. Yes, he was large. (laughs) He was tall. A frightful enemy to face in battle. Nine feet tall. All that armor and a huge sword and everything that went with it. But he was also a man that intimidated not only with his size, but with his words. For every day he came out and he literally reviled God and all the armies of God. And he belittled them and he told them they couldn't stand against him. And that, uh, well, they were hopeless. And they believed it. All except for David. They were intimidated by the words. Now, we, we just spoke of Absalom. He took a little different approach. But he used words to turn a nation against his father. He used underhanded tactics to change the minds of people. Is that not what Khrushchev was trying to say he meant, by the way? Well, let me give you another example, too, from Scripture. And this comes from 2 Samuel chapter 16. This is really set in the, the time in which David is fleeing from his son Absalom, who has come and set himself up as king, basically, in place of David. And, and uh, he, he has got so many people following him that, that David and uh, what few that are still loyal to him, they flee Jerusalem. And they are, they are moving south and east from Jerusalem, which means they are moving through the territory of Judah and in the proximity of Saul's clan, the Benjamites. Saul was a Benjamite. Data, even uh, from Judah. And for the most part, up until now, they, they've stayed together. But part of this division here, it, it, it probably didn't fall along those lines only. It, it was it was broader than that. But there's a Benjamite who has been harboring ill toward David for many years, who comes out of the woodwork, who comes out of the shadows. He's a man by the name of Shimei. If you look at it in English, it's S-H-I-M-E-I, but pronunciation in Hebrew, Shimei. He's a nobody, other than he is connected by blood to some degree to Saul. 
And as David is fleeing, and they're traveling a road, and, and he is on a higher elevation, and he is hurling curses and insults at David, and calling David basically a murderer, saying David is the reason Saul's dead. David never killed Saul. Saul was killed in battle. Saul had tried to kill David on many occasions, and David never lifted a hand towards Saul. But this man has got it in his head. It's David's fault. Saul's dead. And he basically calls David a murderer, and he throws rocks at David, and he throws rocks at the people that were with David, and he throws dust and dirt down on them, and he's cursing them, and he, he is accusing David. And Abishai says, David, just give me the word. Just give me the word, and I'll go up there, and I'll relieve him of his head. <laughs> Here's David's response. 2 Samuel sixteen eleven, And David said to Abishai and all his servants, See how my son, who came from my own body, seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite let him alone, let him curse, for so the Lord has ordered him. In other words, it's, it's in the Lord's plan. Here it's in something God has allowed and part of the, what's going to unfold since God is sovereign. So for so the Lord has ordered him. Verse 12 uh, is uh, really important here. I don't know if I gave Robbie that verse. But anyway, verse 12 says, It may be that the Lord will look on my affliction and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing this day. David says, hey, leave him alone. He's a nobody. It's just words. It's just words. Words used as weapons are always about. They are prolific. Lies, such as Absalom told. Exaggerations. Oh boy. I wish, uh, I wish I'd have kept record of how many times as a pastor over 40 years I've had someone come to me and say, Pastor, everybody's upset about such and such. And I'd learned after a while to say, well, really, well, can you give me their names? I'd like to go speak with them. I never get any names. That's because everybody's not really upset. What they mean is a few of my friends that I have consulted with are now upset because of what I told them. And if you discuss it with a few other friends, you find out they're not really that upset at all. Words are used to manipulate so often. And I hate to say it, but even in the ranks of God's people. Accusations, lies, exaggerations, accusations, unfair criticisms, threats. Oh, man. You know, in the church, the, the threats are, well, Pastor, if you don't do what I think you should, I'll go somewhere else to church. And that's perceived as a threat to me so often. It has been over the years. And and I wish all of them well that have left and hope that they have found peace in a pastor that never makes a mistake somewhere else. Negative humor. 
humor in, in the sense of laughing at someone, not laughing with them. There's a big distinction there. Sarcasm, sarcasm out of control. Ridiculing people in front of others. In other words, rendering judgments and ridiculing someone in front of other people when it's none of their business. D- disparaging comments. You know, we could just go on and on and on. Words used as weapons are prolific. But there's a second reason why we need to mind. Let's see if we can get back to the regular slides there, guys. There we go. There's a second reason why we should not be intimidated by the words of men. Number one, they're just weapons that will only have effect on us if we allow them to. If someone shot an arrow at David or threw a spear at him, well, uh, he might could avoid it. The best hope there, or use his shield. But words, you don't have to do anything. Words that really hurt and make a difference and intimidate and manipulate do so because we allow them to. We, we put down our defenses. We need to understand that when words are weapons, they should be disregarded. Reason number one. Number two, God will defend us. You see, we don't have to fend off words because God is our defender. God is our shield. Now, this is kind of a hard case to make, but I'm going to make it for you as best I can. And I think it'll be clear in the end. But let's, let's look at it from the perspective of, well, I'm not sure I really can pinpoint God's defense so well, but I want, I want you to try to see it with me. Let's go back to verse one. Help, Lord! <laughs> David wouldn't have made that cry if he didn't think God could do something about it. Let me tell you something. There's nothing that God can't do something about it. God doesn't always choose to do something about it the way we think he should, when we think he should, but there's nothing God can't take care of. And so even in the misery and lament that David pours out here, help, Lord, there is, there is that acknowledgement, there is that understanding deep in David's heart. The reason I'm crying out to God is because God can't take care of it. Prayer is the best response when words are turned against us by others. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. They speak idly, every one with his neighbor, with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. Verse 3, may the Lord cut off all flattering lips. David goes from help, Lord, to Lord, Bring your power to bear on the situation. 
Cut off all flattering lips. So prayer is the best response when words are used as weapons against us. But God is our shield. He is our defender against evil. And this is where we really have to get down to business and understand what David is saying. Verse 5, For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord, I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. Now, the verb here, will arise, and the verb here, will set, is an imperfect verb in the Hebrew language, which means the action is not yet completed. And so we understand here, exactly like the translators did when they insert the word will, it is used as a future tense here. I will arise. He didn't say to David here, and David doesn't say it here in Scripture, I have arisen in this regard, in this moment of your lament, but I will. I will arise, says the Lord, and I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. Now listen, this is, this is crucial to understand. He did not promise that he would do it in this lifetime. He might, and sometimes he does, but the promise here does not say he will do it immediately or even before life is over. But he will do it. So God has promised ultimate protection. Boy, there's no greater illustration in the life of Joseph. His brothers cast him down in that pit. They would have killed him. Some of them would. If some of the others hadn't intervened, they would have killed him. But they couldn't come to consensus on that. So they put him in a pit and they sold him to the uh, caravan that came by to be a slave in Egypt. And then they told Jacob that he'd been killed by a wild animal. That's a pretty tough way to enter into your adulthood. As a young man, maybe 16, 17 years old. See, he, he goes down to Egypt. And I'm sure that Joseph was crying out, help, Lord, help, Lord. He goes down to Egypt and he's bought by a man by the name of Potiphar. He becomes a household slave. But he has such magnificent leadership qualities and management skills that Potiphar soon makes him the head of everything that he owned. And God blessed Potiphar for it. You say, well, God is blessing Joseph after all that he suffered. But then you know the story. Potiphar's wife, the untruth, the lie she told when it was her that was perpetrating something that Joseph refused. Potiphar has him slammed into prison. Now, that was no country club back then. There was some hole in the ground somewhere. 
But Joseph had such people skills and management skills and such leadership skills. And he, he, he was such an outstanding individual. He was soon given control of the prison. Then we know the story how, you know, the, the, the uh, servants of Pharaoh ended up being thrown into prison and uh, he interpreted their dreams and the one was executed and killed. The other was allowed to return. And he, Joseph said, tell Pharaoh what I've done. And the man didn't do it. He, he's wronged again. Over and over and over and over again, Joseph is wronged. It wasn't soon... It wasn't but soon after that, Joseph was standing next to Pharaoh over the whole nation of Egypt. And his brothers and his dad came down to him and said, we need your help. Now that's what God can do, even in this lifetime. But whether it is now or whether it is after we go to be with the Lord, he will Arise, He will set us into safety for which we yearn. Why? Because his words are pure. Verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words. There are no lies, there are no untruth. What he promises he will do. His promises are good. They're pure words like silver tried in a furnace of earth. Purified seven times. You purify raw silver ore with heat. The impurities are separated from the silver. He says God's words are pure. There's no contamination, no hypocrisy, no untruth. Like silver tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times, you shall keep them, you shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from generation forever, from this generation forever. God, your words are so pure that whatever you promised, you're going to keep your promise. Now we're back to verse 8. The wicked prowl on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. That's where David ends. God's words are pure words. They are exceedingly reliable. They, they are trustworthy words. We can count on them. But when David ends this psalm, he has not been the recipient of the promises made here. Not at this point. But he understands exactly what he's said here and how it fits. Now I want to conclude by giving you a couple more examples from Scripture to just kind of seat this in our minds. Galatians 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. That's what we see in Joseph's life. His brothers sowed evil. They ended up starving. Joseph did what was good no matter what happened to him, and he ended up being number two in Egypt. It works both ways. What you sow, you'll reap. That's a principle that will work out in this lifetime. And sometimes it's working out in someone's life, and we think God's doing nothing. We just don't see it. 
There's things going on in their life where they're reaping things that we don't know they're reaping. So that's one thing to keep in mind. Absalom reaped what he sowed when Joab found him hanging in that tree in 2 Samuel 18. And thrust his weapon into his heart. Absalom reaped what he sowed in this life. Shimei did too. David never laid a hand on Shimei. Solomon became king. And David had given permission for Solomon to do whatever he wanted with Shimei. And, and he could have had him executed, but Solomon gave him grace. And he said, look, the only thing I'm going to do for you is I'm going to put you under house arrest. As long as you stay in Jerusalem, you're safe, but don't ever go out. Three years later, Shimei left town. He was executed soon after. Both Absalom and Shimei reaped what they had sown. Not immediately in either case, but fairly soon. Now, one last thing, and then we'll go back to the, the fact that sometimes it doesn't work out that we can see in this life. And I just want to take you uh, to the New Testament, to chapter 18 of Luke. 18 verse 1, then he spoke as parable of Jesus. Then he spoke a parable to them that men ought always to pray and not lose heart. And there's the point of everything he's going to say hereafter, down through verse 8. That men ought to always pray and not lose heart. And he gives this parable. There was a certain city, a judge, who did not fear God or regard men. And there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterwards he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard men, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. Even an unjust judge eventually will relent and do what's right. But God is not comparable to that unjust judge. He is in contrast to that unjust judge because the Lord says, and the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said, verse 6. And then he says, and shall God not avenge his own elect who cry to him night and day, though he bears along with them, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on earth? He's talking about an eschatological, an end time scenario here. He's saying, God's going to take care of it, and God's going to take care of it in timely fashion. We'll soon be at that point when God's judgment will fall. We are not there yet, even in our lifetime. When that time comes, then he will act quickly and speedily, and he will right all wrongs, and he'll bring about all justice. So we have both of those principles we've got to keep as part of our thinking and understanding when we cry out, Help, Lord. Help, Lord. 